Hello, everyone. Before we get started with today's show, I think it's important that I comment on the events of yesterday, Wednesday, January 6th, in the U.S. Capitol. I'm not referring to the Electoral College certification process, though I could, since it is newsworthy in its own right and it's related to what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the fact that a group of angry, even unhinged, and in some cases reportedly armed people stormed the U.S. Capitol in what I assume they decided was a form of justified protest, and I'm being charitable. I started this podcast as an ode to staffers, the people who work largely behind the scenes in government and politics at any level. This podcast is rooted in respect for them and their work and the project that that work is a part of, which is American self-governance. That is a beautiful thing. But we are seeing the degradation of that beautiful thing by leaders and, yes, some staffers, through incitement and willing departure from verifiable truth and legitimate process. I had an old boss who said, democracy only works if we think it does. And that statement, I didn't fully wrap my mind around when he first said it, but it has grown in importance to me over the years. This democracy only works if each of us believes that our vote and the votes of everyone have duly elected our leaders. That's what empowers our leaders to make decisions and for us as citizens to accept those decisions. That's why our voting process has extensive rules and regulations, guidelines for transparency, and a process for recounts and appeals, all of which have been utilized in the last few weeks. I am not saying that our voting process is perfect. In fact, there are lots of things I'd like to change about our voting process. But I am saying that the current objections are demonstrably false. They have been proven false repeatedly. And the peddlers of these lies, from Donald Trump on down, are attacking both verifiable truth, capital T truth, and the very heart of what makes our democracy run. And now, as we saw yesterday, lives are at risk. Staffers I know on both sides of the aisle were put in grave danger needlessly and unfairly. Today, you'll hear me talk with Frank Luntz, a Republican pollster, and some of the things we touch upon are the importance of word choice and civility in our politics so that our politics can operate within certain bounds. I even raise the all-too-common use of the word traitor, which I find particularly offensive. And I hope that part of the conversation resonates, but in light of yesterday's events, I feel I need to go further and say two things to every staffer in Washington today, and perhaps all over the country. Number one, from the bottom of my heart, I hope you are safe, and I want to express my profound appreciation that you've decided to commit your talents and your energies to making the country and the world a better place. But number two, If you are trafficking in QAnon-style conspiracies to undermine the results of this election and or your boss is doing the same, you need to stop. 
Politics is a seductive business. It has power and hubris, and those are dangerous things, and together they are more than toxic, they are combustible, and we are watching them combust. Every staffer and everyone in public life needs the humility to say things like, I might be wrong. I might lose an election, and if I do, I'll accept the result, but fight on through future elections or in other ways that are valid and policy-oriented. And most importantly, right now, we need some people who are willing to say, this has gone too far. That's all for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Stay safe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. This week, I got to sit down with Frank Luntz, a well-known name across not only our polling world, but across the broader political world. If you have consumed political news at any time over the last 25 years, you have undoubtedly seen Frank on TV or read his observations in print. Pretty much Anywhere political conversations are happening, Frank Luntz has been there. He's also written numerous books. He authored the New York Times bestseller, Words That Work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. His second book, What Americans Really Want, The Truth About Our Hopes, Dreams, and Fears, hit number six on the New York Times bestseller list. In March 2011, he released Win the Key Principles to Take Your Business from Ordinary to Extraordinary. Time Magazine has listed him among the 100 most influential people in the world. The Atlantic Magazine described him as America's top political wordsmith. Frank is no stranger to controversy either. He has done high-profile work for Newt Gingrich, for example, most famously when he helped write the contract with America. He has helped elect and advise scores of Republican candidates and elected leaders across the country. Though, as you'll hear, he doesn't really do that work today anymore. It's been about a decade since he worked directly in politics, though he is still synonymous with public opinion and campaigns and getting one's understanding about what the public thinks and wants right. I spoke with Frank about his career and his interactions with staff through the years on Friday, December 18th, virtually, of course, given the circumstances. Frank Luntz, welcome to Staffer. It's a pleasure. I, I don't know if it's a pleasure. I'll tell you that when it's all done. I think that's fair. That's fair. Um, I like to start my interviews talking with folks um, about where and how they grew up. And I know you grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, but talk to me about you know, what you and your family talked about around the dinner table and how you caught the bug for politics. Well, it's actually ironic that we did have conversations about politics around the dinner table. My mother had a rule, no television. In fact, no television, no generic conversation at the dinner table. We were present. We were focused. You could not read at the table. You had to engage in conversation. Uh, They would ask me very tough questions about politics. I would give them shockingly specific answers. They knew I liked politics at a young age. And, and they encouraged me. They always encouraged me to pursue my passions. And I owe so much of my interesting life to the fact that I grew up in a normal Jewish, uh, um, Jewish motherly home for all of that, what all of that means. And, um, 
And I was very fortunate that I had a father who cared about my happiness. I had a mother who cared about my success. I had a sister who uh, was uh, uh, challenged in a number of ways, which taught me about compassion. And, and I went to good schools that taught me about the pursuit of intellectual curiosity. You did. You, uh, when you left home, you studied at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and you got your undergraduate degree there. You then uh, studied at Oxford, where you got your PhD in politics. And while you were there, you, you know the interesting life that you uh, embarked upon really started because you became friends, as I understand it, with Boris Johnson, current prime minister of England. How did you guys meet, and what did you start working together on? Well, that is correct. And I will tell you, and you're too young, because I can see you, your, your, your audience can't, but I can see you. And this sounds just like Ralph Edwards, This Is Your Life. Uh, that <laughs> show has been off the air now for about 50 years. He's been dead for about 20 years. But this sounds like uh, Anne, your fifth grade teacher, had this to say about you. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm fa- I've got him on the other line, Frank, and yeah. I want to pipe him in. Yeah, but the, the, difference, <laughs> the difference is that people, when they went through this process, actually hated it. It was very emotional. And it's very funny that, that the viewers at home had no idea that the people being honored just despised the experience, had to come face to face with people that they did not like. They were glad that they were out of their life. And, and you've got that voice. You've got that demeanor, the way <laughs> so you ask that, the questions. Does that apply to your relationship with Boris Johnson? Or are you happy that he's still in your life? No, I'm happy. Uh, and he's come in and out. And, and we're, I wouldn't call us close friends, but I respected him very much. He delivered speeches at the Oxford Union that to me were not only memorable, they were, they were profound and significant. And they, they changed the way that I looked at communication. Boris does not talk like any elected official I've ever met. He doesn't think like them. And everyone said to me, stay friendly with him because someday he's going to be prime minister. They pegged him. It is amazing. The students that go to Oxford and Cambridge are are predestined to lead their country. We do. It is like Harvard and Yale on steroids. And, and I... Frankly, I owe Boris because it was the first time that I ever did a survey for money. He paid me to poll students at Oxford for his run for the Oxford Union presidency. My numbers were so close. I was off by not, because this is British, I was off by not 0.2%. And from that point on, Boris always felt that I could see the future. Wow. And and, uh, to this day, on election night here, on election night, he was one of the phone calls that came to me. I didn't make it. He called to see what was going on. And I'm honored. I, I consider that a privilege. And I do believe in the special relationship, and it's alive and well. What was it about his speeches that you learned about communications? He, he spoke in metaphors. He talked about Israel being the school kid, being bullied by bigger and tougher neighbors. And at some point, that school kid swings, reaches out, can't take it anymore, and swings and knocks them out, the David versus Goliath. And I remember that analogy in the Middle East, and it always stuck with me. And that's the way that he saw all of his communications, not in trying to argue over the facts, but in trying to, to visualize it and humanize it in ways that people could understand. He was so quick and so precise 
he was brilliant. And, and he also looked like a sheepdog. So uh, I just thought it was funny to hear these, these words coming out of someone who looked like the last time he got a haircut was 1963. <laughs> so uh, this taps into something that I read, a, a quote that you gave, um, where you described being a pollster as being a translator helping your candidate's campaign understand what the public wants and helping the public understand that that's what your candidate is delivering. There are lots of staffers who work in politics or government who actually don't get to interact with the pollster very much. Um, So for those folks who are listening to the show and work in politics or government but actually haven't had that type of relationship, how would you describe the pollster's role on a campaign and how that polling is used? I actually, even we've only been at this for five minutes, and I appreciate the way you formulate your questions. You, well, thank some, you. someday you could be a pollster, although you need to find a good shop to work for. <laughs> I'll know, stay in the hunt. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, it's, I've changed. I do see myself as a translator. I did. And now I see life as a jigsaw puzzle. And every day you get a new puzzle. As you get older, the puzzles get more complicated but the desire to put them together uh, grows as well. And I, I look at every day of my life as another jigsaw puzzle. And at the end of the day, have I managed to put the pieces together or do I still not see the picture? Do I not see that puzzle in its entirety? And my goal in life is to put that puzzle together and to be able to do it for, for businesses and for ideas and for organizations and and an occasional political person. But you know, I haven't really done partisan politics in, in more than a decade. And that part of my life, it's mostly in the past. And it's not something that I particularly focus on today. So the, the last couple of presidential elections, while you haven't been doing a great deal of, of partisan polling, um, have led to questions about polling and specifically about accuracy. You use survey research and polling for a lot of different things beyond predicting. What do you think are the best and greatest uses of survey research? And on the flip side, where do you think it can sometimes fall short? I think the worst aspect of polling is the prediction. And that's what people care about the most, who's going to win. And, and just before Election Day, every uh, every hour i'd get three or four calls from people wanting to know who's going to win I mean, it's the same thing's happening to me right now in the georgia senate race they're not calling me to ask what's the state of democracy they're not asking are we coming together as a country they're asking me who's going to control the senate and i i tell them but that i think is the worst use of polling and i do think the industry has been hurt i do think i have suggested to candidates that maybe they go a cycle without polling that maybe they turn to their pollsters and say, you know what? I need to listen more, listen more to the voters and listen less to you. I encourage political people to say no to those who wish to make money off of them by telling them what voters think. It's the job of the candidates to know it without the pollsters. It's the job of them to interact without some go-between, some uh, now let's try to pronounce it, Svengali, who convinces them that only they understand what people really think. I want the candidates themselves to know, and I'll let you in on a secret. In the last six weeks since the election, I've presented to both Republicans and to Democrats. I have presented where the country stands, 
not to help them in the re-election two years ago, but to wake them up to the challenges and the divisions of the country today. In my presentations to Republicans, they tell me how radical, how extreme, how socialist the Democrats have become. In my presentations to the Democrats, they tell me how mean-spirited and how reckless and dishonest the Republicans have become. And I really want to put them both in the same room at the same time, show them each other's ads, and then say, defend it. Defend why you're such a schmuck. Defend why you think that the other side, it's always the other side. Their side is virtuous and decent and respectful and honorable, and the other side behaves so horribly. No. Take a look at the ads. Take a look at the campaign phone calls. Take a look at the language that's being used. Both sides are pathetic. Both sides are pitiful, and they're destroying the country. So let me just follow up on that. So, you know, one of the things that you have been known for most in your career sort of put you on the map was helping write the contract with America, the 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 Republican uh, platform, really, that they utilize to help take back the House. Um, We Democrats look at that as the beginning of an era that I know Republicans would say certainly didn't begin there, but as a more combative era that we are in. It hasn't diminished. It's only become more combative. One of the quotes I read in preparation for this interview uh, by you really jumped off the page for me because you're not a subtle person. Um, You're not known for subtlety, but I love this quote. So I'd I'd like you to um, respond to it. You said, part of my job is to teach subtlety. Often subtlety, the quiet voice actually communicates. That feels like an arc of your like th- that resonates for me with what you were just saying which may contrast with where you were 25 years ago in the mid 90s what have you learned about subtlety and what do you want elected leaders today to know about the subtle voice i just want them to be nice i want them to see the relevance in what their opponents are saying i want them to see that not everyone's going to agree with them i want them to attempt to represent uh, the majority in a inclusive way. And I don't want them to look, uh, the best example I can give you is the absolute low of my professional life. The, the worst moment in politics is that first presidential debate this year. When Trump and Biden did not listen to each other, they shouted at each other. Vice, the vice president told the president of the United States to shut up. I mean, come on. You think that's appropriate? I, this is actually, I'm asking you a question now. Do you think that's appropriate? No. Look, I was I was on the House floor when a Republican House member yelled out during a speech that President Obama was giving, you lie. So, like, I think these words absolutely matter. And, and the response respect of protocol or respect for protocol and boundaries really matter. So absolutely, I would hold up that debate as an abysmal showing in a democracy that relies on hearing each other and winning an argument. You have to be able to make an argument and then, you know, and defeat the other guy's argument. That's what this democracy is about. And let me, because I would get killed for people who watch this, as bad as Joe Biden was, Donald Trump was much, much worse. I was in the debate hall. I was in the sixth row. And I seriously considered standing up and saying, would you guys cut it out 
and answer the damn goddamn question and stop acting like 14-year-olds. This is embarrassing for the country. We deserve better. Cut it out. And now I know I would have gotten out the first sentence. I would have been tackled, arrested, thrown in jail, beaten. Trump would, who to his pardon, everyone would never pardon me. And I probably would have been tortured in prison. But I really, truly thought about it because this was an embarrassment. And you know what? As we know now, it cost him the election. And I, I really do appreciate it when actions have consequences. If Donald Trump had not behaved that way, he may very well have won this election. Because there are enough states where he was within a percent or percent and a half. We know that the debates did not imp, uh, impact 98% of America. But they did impact 2%. And people thought Joe Biden won that debate. Donald Trump was so foolish and so rude and so horrific. And I don't know. I want to blame his staff. But they're telling me that those, those were his decisions, that he went in there. He made the choice to interrupt and 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 interrupt. That was his decision. If it's not, if he was told to do that, then those people should be removed from any kind of politics and he, and, and he should get his money back. But well, that was, it, it, it is somewhat consistent. You know, if it was his decision, I'll just say it is consistent with the way he's conducted himself in office for four years. Why? I mean, right. I mean, he has shouted everything he has said through Twitter and through the microphone that he commands in every way. And then you, but you also mentioned about the separation to me, what Maxine Waters, Waters did when she came out and she said that she should give none of these people space, give none of them breathing room, attack them, attack them at restaurants, attack them at movie theaters, attack them when they're pumping gas, go at them. Someone's going to get killed. One of these days, we're going to have another Gabby Giffords. She was attacked. She was shot by one of these crazed individuals. We can't keep doing this. And you can't just, I, I, the, the reason why I keep focusing on this presentation is because it happened just 24 hours ago, and so it's in my head. I want to say to these Democrats, did you see the ads that you guys are putting out? You are correct. Everything you say about the Republican Party is correct. Now, now, look at your own ads. Look at your own campaigns. The idea that you're telling people that the Republicans are going to take away pre-existing conditions. They accused some of these Senate candidates who had actually sponsored the legislation to guarantee coverage of pre-existing conditions. But because they've got an R after their name, they were accused of trying to eliminate it. It's a lie. They well, and both so on that, so let's, so the, uh, in terms of boundaries, and, and you are, uh, you've been called America's wordsmith. Um, so, I mean, you understand language and its impact as well as anybody. There are certain words that probably got used too often 25 years ago. They were rare, but every, they were still utilized that today I think are feeding this danger that you are describing. One of those words is traitor, right? Like I think any candidate, any elected official should just like that should not be allowed, right? We need to put that back outside the bounds of politics because we're to a point where we've got lots of Americans thinking other Americans are actually traitors to the country. And 
that prompts some really scary responses when people think their country's under attack. You wouldn't know this, but I'm doing a call this afternoon, not with headphones and microphones and all this (laughs) effing technology that you make me, so I can't- That's that's working out just great. I can't stand it. It's driving (laughs) me crazy. But I had someone yesterday send me an email in response saying, I'm not going to listen to you, that phone call. She's a traitor. And I wrote back, okay, no problem. I get it. I will not bother you again. I will not invite you to another phone call again. I will not engage you. If we can't listen to people who we fundamentally disagree with, even those who we think are doing damage, we have a responsibility to hear the other side, to listen to it, and then respond to it. If it is that bad, then you listen to it to know how to defeat it, how to eliminate it. But to shut it off and cancel it is simply wrong. We live in a cancel culture right now. If we don't like what someone else is saying, we simply cut them off. And that doesn't help anybody. You know, you mentioned the the first debate being a, a real mistake on the part of the president during this campaign. I, I want to ask you about his decision not to have a party platform. I mentioned the contract with America. It was a very clear list of 10 things that House Republicans and Republican candidates said they were going to do if elected. This year... There was no Republican platform by choice. Now, I think that's a substantive mistake. I think even though very few people click on you know the website or read the published book about what's in there, I think it is good hygiene for both political parties to have to put on paper what it is they you know commit to. But was it a political mistake not to have a platform? It wasn't. I don't see it as a political mistake. It was, but it was not a significant one. I see it as a governing mistake, that people have the right to know where you stand on the issues and you have the responsibility to tell them accurately and honestly what you want to do, what your priorities are, what you're not going to do. And and that's one of the problems with, with, uh, with the last four years is that it became a, a culture of personality rather than an ideology. And it's why I don't, the people who back Donald Trump don't back him because of where he stands on the issues. They back him because of who he is and how he communicates and what he says and how he says it. And that's not, frankly, that's not the kind of politics. And maybe I am an elitist or maybe I, I have joined the, uh, the, the uh, um, what do they call it? The establishment. But to me, ideas matter. I grew up from that, to go back to your first question, from the dinner table at my home, through my college career at Penn and at Oxford, through my teaching at Harvard, Penn, at, at NYU and USC, all of my work has been about ideas, much more about ideas than about people. And so the last four years have been very difficult for me. It's been a conflict for me repeatedly because I want to, I want to promote those those people, those organizations, those companies and corporations that I agree with. I want to promote the ideas that I agree with. And there just weren't any coming out of Washington because the president was focused on his own persona, which is different. And there's an exception to that. I was just came out of the Middle East. I was there for the last 10 days and I'm exhausted. So if I have trouble, I say to your listeners, because I can hear it when I have headphones on, you know that I had a stroke in January, and that affects my way of uh, my way of speaking. It doesn't affect my thinking, 
but it does affect how I formulate words. And so if I'm tired, it's much more difficult. It has also caused a change in me. I can't get angry anymore. If I get angry, I literally fall over. I get dizzy and just it just rewired me. And so it's hard for me to enunciate. It's hard for me when I get really tired to have the same level of intensity that I had before. And that has led me to rethink what I say, to rethink what I do. It's given me the courage to stand up for things I disagree with. And I get in the face now of, of people on both sides of the aisle. And I say, why did you say that? Why did you communicate it? Why are you so mean? And I have thrown so many people off of my, these private phone calls that I do for about 300 people. If you ask something mean in the chat room, I don't care if I've known you for 20 years. If you're mean, I disconnect you and you're disconnected from my life. I've given up on several friends who I've known for many, many years because I realized I don't want to be around mean people. And the fact is, Jim, in politics, there's more meanness, there's more cruelty than in any other profession. And on both sides of the aisle, we've got to stand up and say, enough already. Don't be a jerk. You can disagree without being horrific. And uh, I just wish I just wish people would listen. You know, I um, I have a, a recurring segment that I like to ask people. Um, one of them is called Time Machine. And uh, the question is, if you could go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Well, the first thing is you're about the 15th person to do that. So the first thing I'd say is I go back to the 15-year-old Jim and I'd say, don't do a segment that somebody else created about 20 years ago. Come up with something new. In fact, instead what of going, if I said, what if I said your 24-year-old self? No, I'd say do the opposite. <laughs> if you could go and talk to your 75-year-old self, okay. what would you do? Talk about the future. That would be interesting would go, too. I'd like if to I would that. go back, I would have worked much less harder than I did. I did not need to work this hard. I always thought that it was I was one day away from it being taken away from me. There's a book that Eleanor Cliff wrote with her late husband uh, about people who had impact in Washington. And she wrote it in 1996, right after the contact with America. And in that book, I talk about how I don't think I'm going to be around that long. I don't think I'll make it just physically. And I think that, that I will get upended. So I never believed it would last. And instead of enjoying every minute, I worked really hard. And maybe because I worked so hard, it did last. But I did not need to put in 18-hour days, seven days a week, every month, every year. I miss so many cool dinners. I miss so many cool opportunities, so many concerts, so many sporting events because I was working. And I so deeply regret that now. And I now tell my students, you got to be dedicated. You got to be willing to, to put in the time and the effort. But don't live when you're 25. Don't live so that you'll have a better life when you're 40. Enjoy when you're 25. Enjoy when you're 30. Don't bust your ass because then you won't even enjoy the ride. You won't even enjoy the adventure because so much of, of, of the enjoyment of life is the work and the process of getting to where you want to go. Enjoy that, that trip because you only get one chance to take it. And if, if something bad happens to you on that journey, you don't get a chance to redo that journey. You know, speaking of uh, talking with students, um, when I talk uh, to students, one of the things I'm often asked is, you know, was there a time 
you made a huge mistake and what did you learn from it? I love that question uh, because for me, there's plenty to choose from. Um, what about you? Is there is there a time that you, you know, when asked that question, you can point to it and say, it was horrible, but here's what I learned from it. And by the way, I do want listeners to know that when you said, oh, there's plenty to choose from, Jim just rolled his eyes. Like, like, it's that, it's that <laughs> sense. You, you. And there's, there's hey, that I fake thought laugh. There, I, thought, I thought you were on the anti-lying uh, campaign here. But oh. in politics, oh, I did so not now roll my eyes. So now you're accusing me of lying. Boy, <laughs> you Democrats go right for the jugular immediately. Uh, I, I actually, my students will tell you that I have in class, every single class, I have to acknowledge a mistake that I made. Uh, and it's part of demonstrating humility. So I have the right to challenge them, to, to take them on, on how they think and what they believe. But in return, they can do the same thing for me. So my mis- I told Rupert Murdoch that nobody would want to have a camera in their cell phone, that they will want to keep the two instruments separate. A camera is for taking pictures. A phone is for making calls. Don't combine them. I literally told him that. It's amazing <laughs> he still talks to me now. Uh, I told Newt Gingrich that the best way to describe the breakup of his second marriage was to talk about how hard he worked and how in doing that, he forgot about his priorities at home. Well, he said it. I watched him say it, and I watched him get creamed for it. So I regret giving him that advice. Um, I didn't let. I I should have stopped Kevin McCarthy from doing an interview with Sean Hannity about his temporary run for speaker. I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago. And I told him not to do it, and he insisted on doing it. And at the moment that he was walking to the interview, I actually thought of tripping him, tackling him, and not letting him go. And to this day, and he knows it because we've talked about it, to this day, I regret not absolutely blocking the door and saying, you're going to have to have me physically removed because this is a bad mistake. Don't do it. And so, remind me, what, what came of that interview? Like, why? what happened? I don't, I, I, I don't quite remember. That's when he talked about Hillary Clinton because they'd held up Hillary Clinton because they'd- Benghazi. Yes, exactly. And that it had, uh, voters now looked at her differently. Well, that meant that the hearing was, in fact, political, not uh, policy-based, and it, it, uh, and it hurt him. Yep. Okay. My last question for you, because you've been generous with your time. Um, if I have this fantasy that I can raise the money and build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall, you've worked with a lot of campaigns over the years, and in advising elected leaders, have crossed paths with a lot of um, government and official staff. If you could nominate somebody for my staffer Hall of Fame, who would it be and why? It's your colleague. It's Jeff Pollack. And I'll get emotional thinking about it. He and I fight all the time. Whenever we go and do classes together, and we do a fair amount. We do probably a couple a year, every year. He's me, only he's better than me. He's faster than me. He's more vicious than me. He's uh, more articulate than me. He's funnier than me. He's a better person than I am. Uh, it's him because he is a straight shooter. He tells his candidates and his clients the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. He acknowledges when his side is wrong or crazy. And he has always, because we work together, 
uh, he's always excelled in everything that he does. And he would be in the Stafford Hall of Fame because there is nothing that he does half-assed. Everything he does has a purpose, and everything he does, he exceeds expectations. And you can't ask more for someone from someone than honesty, integrity, candor, effort, and result. And that's what he gives every day to everything he does. Frank, um, that is such a nice tribute. And he won't put it this way, but I know he'll be touched by that. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for your time, for your insights, um, for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. And for the record, I know I give you a hard time. You have a perfect voice for this. <laughs> Those are smart questions. You clearly pre prepared for the interview. And if it just had not been for the technology that you burned me with, this would have been a, a fun time for me. I'm, I'm going to take that as a compliment, uh, the whole thing. So thank you. I appreciate it. And sorry about the tech. But uh, next time we'll do better. You got it. All right. I'll thank you, you Frank. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone. I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 